Greetings rulers, past, present, and future. This is a preview episode, so if you want to check out the full episode, you can go to patreon.com slash nightrule to become a patron and uh, access uh, these kind of special episodes that we're going to be releasing. Um, this is a really great conversation with uh, Professor Julie Rack, who's someone I've personally learned a lot from, and uh, she's a really brilliant mind. So um, without uh, any further ado, please enjoy this preview. Isaac is talking about is uh, sometimes I've heard people call it the quantum physics of the humanities. It's um, it's a critical theory introduction course, and those are common at universities across, um, you know, across the continent, and certainly in Europe as well, and in the United Kingdom. And what they are are courses where you learn to deal with abstract ideas that inform how we read literature and that can also help us research it. Um, and that can take a lot of forms. And so um, when I'm teaching this stuff, I, um, critical theory draws on a lot of different kinds of uh, abstract thinking, and that can include from philosophy, from even from economics, uh, from you know gender studies, which actually came to be partly because of the work of critical theory, uh, something called formalism, where we study how literature is put together. Um, semiotics is actually something that thinks of itself as a science, even a social science. So we borrow from a lot of areas, really, in some ways, to be able to figure out how we bring everything to our reading and what our reading brings to us. And that's really what we're trying to do uh, when we're introducing those ideas. But it can feel a lot like a whirlwind tour and a roller coaster ride you might fall off of when you're in it because you're reading so many different kinds of things and, uh, and you're thinking about so many different kinds of things. But I often tell my students when I teach these kinds of courses, I love theory, I love ideas, and I do. I am very nerdy, I love all those things, um, and I think that ideas are actually what drives us. But what I would also say is that when we're thinking about uh, critical theory and we're thinking about what those ideas are, they're not just in the ivory tower all by themselves. In fact, critical theory can be the thing that is the most grounded. It can be the most connected to who you are, who you love, what your identity is, why do you buy things you don't need, which is very important in a pandemic <laughs> to think about. <laughs> yeah, why for sure. Do, you do that even when you shouldn't? <laughs> um, you know, critical theory can actually help you answer those kinds of questions for yourself and help you think in new ways. So really, when we're talking about, when we say the words critical theory, and if you have listeners who have done any work in sociology or political science, they would understand that term differently. They would say it's social theory, that's what, or political theory. But we say critical theory, and that is partly because we think that there is a positionality and an ethics to what we're doing there. So it's not just learning about the world, we're also taking positions, and that's why critical is part of it. But it's also because the story of English studies um, is involves criticism. And the idea of criticism is actually like book reviewing criticism or 
film criticism, okay? So when English studies started, it wasn't really a discipline that studied things. What it had was people who worked at places like Oxford or Cambridge in Britain, right, who were studying languages that were not Latin or Greek, okay? And, and were studying um, works that were written in languages that were not classical languages, okay? Which is where we get the idea of ancient languages that you study and moderns, modern languages is comes actually from that idea. Right. And English was one of those. But what people did then was quite different. They would write articles, you know, beautifully worded articles about um, about a piece of writing about it. And they would review things. It was like they were theater reviewers, but they were like book reviewers. And that's pretty much what people thought English studies was in the 19th century. It was about um, ideas of taste and that you could create an idea of judgment where you could decide what good or bad writing was, okay? Uh, and, in, and that's really the late 19th century version of this. And then everything changes because of World War I. World War I is the thing that creates um, a sense among the generation that survived that the old ways of doing things, the old things, um, needed to be gotten rid of, right? Because the values that had given rise to this huge war in which so many people died, so many people suffered, so many people in Europe particularly were affected by the war because that's where the war took place. It went on for so long. It was very clear to many of the people that had survived that war that the imperial powers who were giving the orders weren't sitting in the trenches with them. Right. And so they were being sent out to kill people for reasons that seemed a bit dubious. Right. To say the least. And and a lot of people ask themselves, what value is the old world anyway? What value does it have if this is what it leads to? Right. And, you know, some of those questions are being asked right now. So it's interesting to think about it back then. For so sure. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that happened was that the old way of understanding English studies changed. Um, there were two critics. They were actually uh, they were actually life partners, um, F. R. Levis and Q. Uh, Q. Queenie Levis actually is her name. Q. D. Levis, and they worked at I think they worked at Cambridge. I'm going to get this wrong, and then all the Cambridgeians are going to come back and go, "No, it was Oxford," but I think it was Cambridge. And they and they were they were in English studies, and what they did was they developed a way of analyzing English texts and connecting them to the idea of being a British person in the modern world. And that is really the beginning, right at that point, right in the right after World War One, that English studies becomes what we recognize today, where you're not just, you know, and the idea of close reading, this concept that you read texts really carefully to see what they say, that you look at their form and what kind of messages a form sends as well as the as well as the ideas in the text that came from them and they really are the people who um who helped to invent contemporary english studies and something similar is happening in other places in france the development of structuralism that you can study the structure of writing and how things are put together and get meaning from that that was a that came into literary studies from anthropology and at the same time in russia there was a movement to also study form um, and, and not just read biographically. So instead of just reading for like what 
does the author think, which is called intention. Okay, so that's the, you were mentioning that, Isaac. So that was the intentional, the intent that you could, if you read a work, you can see what the author is thinking. And a good example of how that doesn't always help you is Harry Potter and the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. You could say that you are reading Harry Potter and you could see what J.K. Rowling thinks and feels, but we know that's not true because the fandom that grew up around Harry Potter actually interprets those texts quite differently from the way J.K. Rowling thinks. And J.K. Rowling's ideas, which are quite conservative, don't always work their way through Harry Potter. So you can't, you, you must be reading Harry Potter for some other reason than just understanding the mind of the author, okay? Another example of that um, in the 1940s was um, J.R. Tolkien, who was an English professor and a linguist. And Tolkien wrote an, a very famous essay about the poem Beowulf. And he said in there, he argued that Beowulf should be read under its own merits and not trying to guess what the author was thinking because we don't even know who the author was, right? right. So we don't even know, so who cares? And it's a little bit like, do we know anything about Shakespeare? We actually don't know that much about him. We know some things about him, but we really can't read Shakespeare's plays or go see them and guess what he's thinking. And so the, the discipline of English began to really decide to move away from that guess what he's thinking or guess what she's thinking kind of way. Although it's always been there and I don't think it's really gone away. Um, you know, and, and I think it is a way to read. Like, I'm not saying you can't read like that, but it's, it's in some cases, it's just not going to help you understand what's going on in a work of writing. So that's really where it all comes from. And so how are you going to read then if what you're going to do is be in this modern world and you're going to read these things and think about them carefully and you're going to think about how they're put together and how that connects to your meaning. And that is really what we're still doing um, all these decades later. But really, English studies as we know it and even theory as we know it in English studies was born in that time. It was born there and it was born in Europe, the United Kingdom and uh, Russia. I would say probably those three places were the most important places where that yeah. work started to happen. And, uh, and not as much in the United States or Canada where English studies really develops much later and in a different way. I think it's, I mean, if you're just, if you're going to go around and interpreting everything just according to your own imagined intention of the author, it's such a, that's such a bland and kind of top down way to interact with like any piece of art. Like, uh, I mean, I think for yeah. sure, like, like you say, it's still, there's still valid, there's still validity in, in that approach, but, you know, opening up the discussion to, um, you know, the, the, the greater place the, the work has in, in history and in society and yeah all these there's there's all these I've always been fascinated by the different lenses I often think about um there was an edition uh a friend of mine had of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and it oh. had three really interesting essays at the at the back that each had a different kind of critical lens that it was looking at the work through the first one was Lacanian psychoanalysis the second was uh, a Marxist reading and the third was kind of just a more traditional close reading yeah um and I think each one brought uh, its own kind of interesting stuff uh, to the forefront. 
Yeah, I think so too. And I think that Frankenstein as a novel is one of the, I mean, I love teaching that novel and I work in contemporary writing a lot of the time and I still love it um, because I think it has so many different things to say to our different times. Like imagine right now, Frankenstein has a lot to say about contagion and a lot to say about science and ethics. And it's, I mean, those things are still topical, even though that novel was published in 1818 in its first version, right? Yeah. And so interesting, right? But yeah, if you were just reading, like when Frankenstein first came out, it was it was authored anonymously. And so people thought when they were reviewing it that a man wrote it because women weren't supposed to be able to write things about ideas. Or <laughs> yeah, right. Not, not like that, you know? And so, I mean, even studying that, you know, like you can't guess the intention of the author when, when, when it's anonymous and when people make mistakes about what gender that person is. And you can certainly read that novel a lot of ways. And you should read it even, you know, for pleasure too, right? Like, I mean, that's a valid way to read something. But, there, but then you can't just do anything with that. Like you just say, well, I like it or I hate it or I'm excited, like you would in your book club or something. And that's fine, but that's not going to, that's not going to yield up everything the text has to give you or that you give it. So it, you have to go somewhere else other than just to, uh, just to think about whether you like it or not. And just to think about whether the author had some thoughts in their head about it. Like a lot of people read it and think, oh, Mary Shelley, you know, her, she had these famous parents and they were um, revolutionaries. And there's a lot of revolutionary ideas in Frankenstein and and that's true, um, but she was also a novelist of ideas, and she was, and she read the science of her time. She was really interested in the science of vitalism. So, shouldn't we know about vitalism, right? Mm. So then we're going on a journey that takes us away from that, um, from that first way to read. And uh, sometimes students don't want to go on that journey. They want to stay in the, they want to stay in the place of I love it or I hate it or you know that. And there's nothing wrong with staying there if you want to. But there's so much more out there. That's what I like to tell people. There <laughs> really is. Theory can help with a, with a text like that. Lacanian psychoanalysis for your audience is a very specialized um, theoretical approach that comes from the discipline of psychoanalysis and one of its practitioners, Lacan, from the 19 lived in the 19. 1950s, uh, really, that's when most of his work was done, 50s and 60s, and uh, and so it's quite a while ago now. But like the psychoanalysis can really help to um, understand what motivations mean and whether we really even know our deepest motivations or know ourselves. And that part of psychoanalysis really does map pretty well onto that novel where people are doing things and they have no idea why they're doing them. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah, um, for sure. Why does Frankenstein build this creature? That's really, really too large. Like, why does he build the world's biggest man? <laughs> <laughs> why yeah. do you think he did that? And why did he just, and why did he abandon his creation, you know, and, and, you know, and all of that, you know, and he's not even completely sure what he's doing. So in that sense, psychoanalysis really helps, but so do other things. So yeah, it's yeah. a great example. Yeah. Um, and uh, just trying to take a page out of, out of what I learned um, mm -hmm. studying in that class. Uh, and I think this probably, this probably comes from structuralism, but I think also from um, post-colonial studies and feminisms mm -hmm. and stuff where, because I, I think, I've, and this really changed how I viewed a lot of storytelling. Like uh, I think, I think it's pretty easy for people to look at a story and say, like, say there's a character in it that's a person of color or a woman and they're yeah. a sympathetic character. So you kind of assume, okay, well, this is a sympathetic portrayal 
therefore this is pro person of color, pro woman. Um, but then in the structure of the actual story, um, like say for example, uh, in this Twilight Zone episode, I'm gonna talk, be talking about with Ben later, um, mm. the female character has a violent end at the, at the, at the end of the story. Oh, yes. And I, I think that's a really interesting question of, and, and, and there's a lot of montages you can look up on YouTube of, of the black guy being the first to die is another great example mm. of it. Oh, and yeah. you know, those, are, those characters are usually sympathetic. So it's, it's, it helped me to kind of realize that, that the kind of surface level interpretation of these characters and this story is definitely not going far enough, and 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 we should look at things like how what how does this character's story actually end? Exactly, and and what is that? And what what are the limits to that story? Another example um, would be uh, you know from television, um, the the television show Will and Grace is often hailed as a groundbreaking show um, around queer issues, JLBTQ plus issues, right? Um, but really, is it? Because if you start to think about it, all you never see anything sexualized occur in the show. Will is just the best friend of a straight girl. Mm. And they're both white people too. And they live in that same TV apartment, that middle-class TV apartment that we all get to watch all the time with the sofa in front, you know? And mm. so if we're gonna be able to understand how groundbreaking was that? It wasn't actually um, very groundbreaking. It, it kept, uh, it basically made Will into a pet for a straight person. Sure. And, and he doesn't ever get to really have, he doesn't get to be gay, really. He just, he acts the way that straight people think that gay people act and, uh, or should act. And, and there's other characters who are more, um, who are more flamboyant, who, who also Jack, right? Straight. I think it's Jack is the other guy. Right. Jack is a good example of that. Um, you know, but they're, but they're not the main character. They're not the title character. The title character is clearly the is clearly the ideal and so in that sense you know you have to ask yourself well you know is that the you know has there has anything happened in that show and what's happened is containment and so yeah you got i think you have to use the critical tools available to you to be able to go a little bit beyond the surface ideas including yeah why do so many black characters seem to not survive in the white worlds that are built for them how many how many shows do we even have where there aren't any white characters? Why do black characters always have to exist in in reference to white characters, right? You know, and and um, you know everyone loves Black Panther because Black Panther has um, an analysis of that where the white character is really minor. There's one, and and he doesn't know what's going on. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's a real fantasy, isn't it? You know, where you can just say, "Go away, white man. You really are not that important to me, and you're going to serve me." You know, I mean, if that's the real fantasy of Black Panther. And so, in that sense, you know, to be able to think about, well, not even just why is this character having such an end in their story, but also what role are they actually playing in that whole narrative? anyway what is the narrative's idea of itself hmm. that's uh, me that needs to have these kind of characters appear and disappear and so yeah that's that's part of what looking at the way structure works that's where that's what that can do and it certainly is what something like semiotics could do to just help you see that absolutely the preview i hope uh, y'all enjoyed that um our next premium episode will be coming out in the next few days uh featuring uh one ben burgess so be sure to uh go to patreon.com slash night rule 
uh, and sign up for premium membership to uh, get a chance to check out that episode when that comes out too. Um, But until then, enjoy your night and we'll talk to you very, very soon.